always from that day one, my stance was, look, if you've stuffed up, admit it, and it doesn't get worse. Because I was a little girl that grew up where there wasn't any role models and you, you, know, you couldn't aspire to, to, to work as a professional athlete, as, as a coach. The three Aussie ladies, Eloise Wellings, Madeline Hills and Celia Sullihan, just waiting for Linio Chaka of Lesotho to finish. More than five minutes behind the winner. It just showed, I guess, the influence that we have as sports people and, and the power of humanity and the power of vulnerability, I guess. If, if you and I put in the same amount of effort, we should get the same, um, expect the same sort of service or result. It just hasn't always been the case. There was lots of things that were silent barriers that um, um, I guess had us behind the start line that you didn't even realise at the time. Welcome to Onside, the official podcast of Sport Integrity Australia. Our mission is to protect the integrity of sport and the health and welfare of those who participate in Australian sport. Hello and welcome to Sport Integrity Australia's podcast Onside. I'm Tim Gavel. Well, Sport Integrity Australia opened on the 1st of July 2020. Our role is to provide advice and assistance to sports and stakeholders to ensure the integrity of sporting competitions and to protect the health of athletes in Australia. Sport Integrity Australia coordinates the national approach to matters relating to sports integrity in Australia with a view to achieving fair and honest sporting performances and outcomes, promoting positive conduct by athletes, administrators, officials, supporters and other stakeholders on and away from the sporting arena, and achieving a safe and fair and inclusive sporting environment at all levels. This highlight edition of Onside features some of our best interviews in the past 12 months. First up, Paralympian Michael Gallagher, who in his prime won two Paralympic gold medals and 10 world titles, but his career took a drastic turn in the lead-up to the 2016 Rio Paralympic Games, when he tested positive to EPO and was subsequently banned for four years. Michael admits he crossed a dark line. People have the right to... um yeah, feel strongly about certain people's decisions, but uh, I think if anything, my story and uh, people um, meeting me in person and stuff probably makes doping seem a lot less black and white, that you can be a good person, an honest person, but uh, head down the wrong way or, yeah, just understand that it, you start out by not being a decision. It's just more of um, a process, a curiosity, and it leads too far. Which is what happened in your case, didn't it? Uh, uh, tell us about what led you to take EPO because it, it's quite an interesting timeline in, in terms of depression, lack of motivation, I guess issues yep. financially, all compounding to, to force you in your own mind to, to make the wrong decision. Yeah, uh, I guess uh, if you combine, you know, a bit of depression, anger, um, alcohol, fighting with uh, your spouse, uh, yeah, financial troubles, all all that sort of stuff, you you feel like your your back's to the wall and you want to just fix it yourself. So that being the case, it's not really a good mindset to make clear and correct decisions. Uh, it's a bit. If a, I wouldn't say a trap, but it's uh, just, it can, um, yeah, just lead you to making poor choices, 
with, with anger. When you took EBO, uh, reading a lot about your story, it, it almost gave you a little bit of a boost psychologically, didn't it? And, you know, you sort of entered a different space for a, a short time there, didn't you? Well, yeah, definitely, because I'd been already competing for 12 years, 13 years, and gradually, well, improving heaps at the start, then you're gradually improving for a few years. Um, you always look for ways to get better, better training methods, um, better recovery methods. Uh, and for the, the, the two years, I guess, leading into Rio, I wasn't going to get any better. I felt that I had done everything um, physically, sacrifice-wise. Um, so, yeah, I guess cheating was something new. It was, um, it's, it's going to give me the, the motivation to go out and hurt myself to a new level. Um, you just got a feeling of this is new and fresh again after you know, a few years of not having any shown improvements or thinking of any other ways to, you know, you're already sleeping in an altitude tent each night. You've got your diet down pat for the past four years. It's, you know, it's, it did give me motivation to train and train, train probably harder than, uh, well, as hard as I ever did. I said you in the intro that your world came crashing down, but to a certain degree, I sense it was almost a relief when you got caught. Um, I guess it's it wasn't a relief to get caught, but it was probably, I don't know whether it was a bit of self-sabotage to, I don't know, looking back, it's probably the only way I would ever see myself getting out of sport. Uh, I was so um, passionate about it. That was my only identity. That's, you know, I was a world champ and felt, you know, like I had such a great status in that community and stuff. Um, I would never want to retire, even though my finances, finances was uh, shot, um, marriage wasn't going well. Yeah, there, there's no future in it when you're getting to close to 40. And I would, I would just be in denial for years and years trying to make the team. And I guess the fact that I had to sever all ties made me, well, yeah, I had to move on. The mere fact that you've come out so publicly, you went on Facebook pretty quickly, to say, listen, across the line, uh, you admitted your guilt. Do you, do you feel as though, you know, people are more accepting of your story now and you know, time has healed to a certain degree and you, you feel better for it? You semi were in a bit of denial, but you wake up and realise, no, that, that is true, that I have done that. Um, so always from that day one, my stance was, look, if you've stuffed up, admit it and it doesn't get worse. It's bad enough as it is. So I, I owned it pretty early. It didn't didn't recover from it straight away. It took a long time, but uh, yeah, a lot of self-reflecting and getting stronger as a person mentally and different goals and stuff. Um, definitely in a much better place than I was as an athlete, not an insecure not a person that can ride a bike really fast, needing everyone else's approval. To, to do so. It's a very powerful message. Michael also discussed the effect his sanction had on his family, friends and sporting community. Michael is a member of the Athlete Advisory Group at Sport Integrity Australia and continues to share his story to educate others. 
You're listening to Onside, the official podcast of Sport Integrity Australia. Gary Graff, who is regarded as one of Australia's greatest ever basketball coaches, winning seven titles in the WNBL. She also coached the Opals to bronze at the 2012 London Olympic Games and was the first female head coach in the WNBA in America. On Onside, she discusses the issue of equality in women's sports in an interview also featuring Australian squash legend Heather Mackay and UC Capitals basketball player Keely Frolling. Firstly, though, here's Carrie. I think there's been a spotlight on women's sport over the last few years, particularly with the, you know, the inclusion of um, you know, AFLW, cricket. You know, the, the Big Bash um, was, was huge in Melbourne with you know, 80,000 plus fans. There's certainly been massive movement forward, but I th- still think there's a massive ways to go. You know, the, you, know you look around the, the country and I think out of about 100 um, CEOs of national sporting organisations, there's four women. Um, you know, the, in the high-performance coaching area, the, the numbers haven't shifted um, hugely at all. And, you know, there's still a massive um, gender pay gap in, in women's sport. And I think the needle hasn't shifted on some of those things. Yes, there's been some, some great movement in, you know, there's now AFL, like I said, AFLW, there's super, super rugby for women, there's NRLW. So there's, you know, we've got more competitions for, for women to compete in. But, um, you know, that's just the start of it. You know, they're... They're new competitions where some of them, you know, the salaries are pretty are pretty low if, if there is salaries and, um, you know, there still isn't big television deals for, for women's sport and I think that'll be one of the next big shifts, you know, when do, when do broadcasters, um, you know, not just support but put women's sport on, on television and, and pay for it and, and back it and know that, you know, people will tune in and watch, people will pay to watch women play sport on television. So what needs to happen to force change? We still need a shift in in the you know the decisions around you know who's going to who's going to support financially women's sport and also how they how people um, uh, value a return on investment. Is it just commercial or is there a social element to your uh, return on investment, whether that's through sponsorship or broadcast? And I think a shift in the thinking of what is a return on investment rather than just commercial and eyeballs is um, is something that's that critically needs to be looked at. It's been your goal, hasn't it? Your dream to have fully professional women's sport in Australia across all sports. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think because I was a little girl that grew up where there wasn't any role models and, you, you know, you couldn't aspire to, to, to work as a professional athlete, as, as a coach. And, you know, I was fortunate to have a professional coaching career for, you know, 20 plus years. So, um, you know, I, I think we're certainly seeing a shift, a, a shift that um, little girls can can look on television and, and look around the media and go, wow, I could do that for a job. And, and that is a legitimate job. Um, but I still think there's a, a long, long way to go. You know, from the Highlight Reel segment, we also spoke to Australian athletes Madeline Hills and Eloise Wellings, who committed a powerful act of sportsmanship at the 2018 Commonwealth Games by waiting for Leonor Chaka at the finish line of the 10,000 metre race. Chaka completed the last three laps on her own. It was deemed to be the defining moment of the 2018 Commonwealth Games. I think um, I think the aftermath of that race um, surprised me and continues to. Um, in the moment, Eloise, Celia, and I certainly didn't, you know, think it was something that was going to be captured or that was going to stay in the memory of so many people. Um, and to be honest, the the day after, I was almost a bit overwhelmed and um, a bit uncomfortable with the response. Um, and it's only been in the time that's passed I've realised what impact it did have and um, how, you know. <laughs> uh, 
our performances as individuals, um, you know, wasn't what was going to be remembered. So, um, yeah, it, it continues to amaze me, the impact it has, but it's um, I'm, I'm very honoured to be a part of it. What about you, Eloise? What's your reaction after you know, a few years now since the 2018 Commonwealth Games? Are you surprised that it still resonates? Uh, yeah, I am. I mean, it was it was such a spur of the moment thing and, and it's something that I guess um, was, you know, resonated with the Australian public and it was, I, I guess, I was overwhelmed by it too. I, I thought, you know, I was actually a bit um, worried about how Linneo was going to respond to all the attention to about, you know, whether it felt weird for her to have all that attention. But um, I was really privileged to catch up with her in the village the next day. And um, and and the first thing she said to me was, thank you for waiting for me. And I, I got back to my room and let the tears fall because I did not have to finish the race alone. And um, and that really moved me. Um, and I, I think it was it, it was a, a moment that I guess uh, reminded me that it's not all about winning. <laughs> well, let's hear the highlight. And uh, as we go back to to listen exactly what happened on that day. Five on the Gold Coast, and sometimes the great moments in sport don't come from the winners, but have a look at that. The three Aussie ladies, Eloise Wellings, Madeline Hills and Celia Sullihan, just waiting for Linio Chaka of Lesotho to finish. More than five minutes behind the winner, Stella Chisang of Uganda. That is what sport is all about, supporting the competitors once you have finished. Yes, and I guess, Madeline, you were quoted after the race saying that I'd like to think if um, I had that day there, there'd be somebody standing on the track for me. Uh, that, that's part of it, isn't it? Um, you're supporting somebody and, and you'd like that reciprocated, I guess, if you were in the same position. Absolutely. Um, and, and similar to what Eloise was saying, it was, um, I think when we reflect on it, you realise how much bigger sport is. You know, it's an individual sport that we do. You sort of go out onto the track and you think you're all alone when you're out there. Um, and in some aspects, I suppose you are. You're out there running by yourself, but you start to see how many people are running along with you. Um, and that includes your own immediate support. Um, obviously, we realise, and you know, it's such a privilege when you put on the green and gold to know it's Australia as well. But um, it is also your competitors, um, and I think it's a good time for us to reflect, but for other people to see too that um, you know you're trying to get the most out of yourself, but also from other people. Um, and we've all had that day. Elsie had it, you know, that day where she didn't get to run, get to have the run that she was hoping for, and. And I had it only a few days later in the 5,000 metres. Um, and I think in that moment, sometimes you can feel very isolated um, running around a track 25 times by yourself. When you're having a tough day, is, you feel very exposed. Um, and so, yeah, I'd, I'd love to think that there'd be people there and there absolutely have been people for me, whether it's a training session or a run or, you know, aspects of life that are off the track. Um, so, you know, my, my time will come where people might wait for me in a similar way. And, um, yeah, it was something that we didn't think about but um yeah i think it was just really uh, incredible that it was captured the way it was eloise is it fair to say there is quite a strong bond amongst the distance runners that doesn't probably exist in some of the other fields yeah for sure i think that there's this 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 mutual respect of, of how hard our sport is and it's not to you know um, lower any other sports, but but our event, especially distance running, it can 
it can be quite um, a lonely, lonely and solitary journey at times. And I think when we all get together in the Australian colours, um, there's definitely a camaraderie and, you know, a mutual respect and a, and a mutual celebration of, of, um, of actually just getting to the starting line. Um, you know, we do a high impact sport and the injuries and I, I mean, my injury journey has been um, quite um, quite significant. So I think just getting to the starting line and, you know, um, respecting each other's journey along the way and, and celebrating each other is, I think it's an important part of, um, of, of, of performing well as well, um, is working as a team and, and, and cheering each other on. Madeline and Eloise also reflected on the aftermath of their act of sportsmanship, the power of sport, and we find out what they're up to now. Finally, during the peak of the Black Lives Matter issue, we featured an interview with Indigenous sporting pioneer Katrina Fanning. Katrina, a proud Wiradjuri woman and member of the Athlete Advisory Group here at Sport Integrity Australia, played for Australia in the first ever Women's Rugby League Test match in 1995. She went on to play 26 Test matches for Australia, but outside of footy, she's contributed so much to the community. We began by talking about her upbringing. There's um, um, in, in a little town like that, um, that sense of belonging and community is really strong. Um, but of course, you're either in that or you're not. And I'm, I'm sure there was plenty of, um, there was probably a few kids growing up that uh, didn't get to experience that. I, you know, played in the school band, did all sorts of things because I just really liked um, being involved. You know, some of those things, like I was terrible at band, but they put up with me. Um, but it was just good to try things and and. You, know, you don't know what you're going to be good at unless you give it a, a fair fair go. So um, I was really lucky to get lots of those different opportunities. Katrina also talks about the racism she encountered growing up in a small country town. There was a couple of um, kids that in my year at school that um, you know, would think it was funny. There was one guy for the first three years of high school that asked me if my sandwich had coon cheese on it every day. It took me a year to realise he was what he was even talking about because yeah. it wasn't something that um, came up too often. Probably only really saw it um, harshly a couple of times and usually um, around um, Laurie playing uh, for, for Junie as well and because he was so good at rugby league, that was what people... Laurie Daly, yeah. Yeah, yeah so that's what people defaulted to was to, to use racism to try and bring him down because he was you know, scoring 10 tries a game and those sort of things. So that was really the only place um, that I saw it as a kid. But, um, but growing up, and, and looking back now, um, things like uh, mum and her siblings. Um, the year before I was born, 1972, was the final year in New South Wales where it was actually law that if someone in town didn't want Aboriginal kids enrolled in the school, they couldn't be. You know, so um, there was lots of things that were silent barriers that um, um, I guess had us behind the start line that you didn't even realise at the time. So you're going through school and my mum's engagement with school was um, pretty limited. She was because it was just not something or a place that she felt embraced uh, through her own childhood and things. And I guess there was a bit of not wanting to be embarrassed by not understanding the homework or being able to do the canteen roster and those sort of things. So that played out in sort of disengaging from it rather than being embarrassed by it. At the time, the Black Lives Matter movement was making a big impact around the world. Katrina reflects on the challenges ahead. It certainly. Um, uh, brings back lots of uh, emotions. Our family directly haven't had someone who's um, died in custody, but certainly those sorts of um, uh, 
when those things happen, it affects a much broader group of people. And knowing that um, uh, at any given time, the way you're going to be treated um, in police custody, um, within a government service system or by a policy is different to other people and, and not in a good way, um, certainly does hang over your head. Um, uh, the constant, uh, we were more likely to, to, to be told to, you know, get you know, make sure you dress properly to go down the street or the welfare will get you or, you know, that was probably um, more of the narrative for us growing up but it was certainly that um, you had to um, um, be uh, better, uh, look cleaner um, than anybody else just to not draw attention to yourself because there was it always felt like there was someone watching. It's not just about um, police custody, etc. We're talking whole equality issues here, aren't That's we? That's right. That's right. The whole... Um, uh, that um, if, if you and I put in the same man effort, we should get the same, um, expect the same sort of service or result, um, just hasn't always been the case. Probably my generation, and luckily the town I grew up in, that was um, a much easier road than it has been for many um, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. And, um, and that can be a, quite a difficult conversation to have at times, but I like to think that um, whilst my experience wasn't perfect, it certainly is um, um, a lot further along the way to the Australia I aspire for us to have that I want our communities to be and, and it proves that it is possible with um, goodwill and, and certainly sport played a big role in that. It didn't hurt that um, all of mum and her siblings were great at sport and that, that the town, um, that was a, a really easy way to start to build relationships once they were allowed to come and live in town. She represented her country in the first ever Women's Rugby League Test match in 1995. It's only now that Katrina realises the significance getting that green and gold jumper. Um, and, and I thought a lot about my, my grandparents, my um, extended family, about sacrifice and things. And that, that day at Lidcombe Oval, after a, a fair spray from Tommy Radonikas as a uh, warm-up speech, uh, um, to be honest, uh, I think the first 20 minutes, you know, I didn't really feel anything except this, you know, huge amount of adrenaline. And by then you're into sort of the arm wrestle of the game and and, it's, and it sort of eases into just feeling like a game again. But that first game was um, yeah, pretty special. I think um, only a few days ago we went past the 25 years for that um, anniversary. So it um, doesn't feel like it's been that long, though. So did you feel as though, oh, listen, I am doing something special here because I'm a woman, um, Indigenous. Um, there are many aspects to this, aren't yeah, there? Yeah, look, at the time it doesn't feel like that because at the time um, each one of those steps is a battle. Now, the first time we got to go on live TV, all the commentators wanted to ask us about was really inappropriate questions about how we might strap body parts and things. So um, I don't think it's until probably about two thirds of the way through the, my career when um, some of that support started to change and people's opinion around the game of women playing rugby league started to change. Up until then, everything, the next step's just the next challenge. Um, whether it's raising enough money to be able to play, whether it's um, uh, addressing sort of stereotypes or um, uh, any of the things that went into to, to raising the bar each time, um, I don't think there was ever a time I thought, you know, this is really special, we're doing something new here. It's, um, it was more the questions of why aren't we able to do this and finding solutions to it. And I don't think it was uh, until um, once I stopped playing that uh, I guess you can relax from that and you feel like, well, um, I, I did um, the best I could with the opportunities that were in front of us and it's probably why since uh, I finished playing I've been as involved in administration and other things and advocating particularly for the women's game and, and for Indigenous um, community pathways um, because I know how special the game is and the difference it can make.
The full interview also talks about the issue of racism within sports and the role sport plays in reducing barriers and social acceptance, coming to terms with her sexuality and her role as an Indigenous champion and Australian women's sports pioneer. Onside is a Sport Integrity Australia podcast which examines the issues that affect sport, helps answer your questions and educates sports and athletes to help to ensure the protection and integrity of sporting competitions in Australia are maintained. Onside can be found on all platforms. You've been listening to Onside, the official podcast of Sport Integrity Australia. Send in your podcast questions or suggestions to media at sportintegrity.gov.au. For more information on Sport Integrity Australia, please visit our website, www.sportintegrity.gov.au, or check out our Clean Sport app.